One year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down top. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Great to have you here. We're presented by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Cotsbros is where you go to get your trapping supplies. They got traps, snares, bait, lure, books, DVDs, and all the various supplies that you need to get going on the trap line. So check them out. We're also brought to you by OnX Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. You can mark your trap locations, record tracks, get landowner information, figure out whose land is next door to your trap line, try to get permissions. You can browse the latest aerial imagery on xmaps.com. Use the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off. All right, guys. This is a great episode. We got Rich Mellon from Trapping Inc. TV uh, and the Trapping Inc. Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm excited to talk about, uh, to get into that and talk with Rich. A couple of other items. Walter Arnold Main Trapper Stories from One of the Last Mountain Men. That's my new book check it out if you haven't already thank you guys so much for all the people who have ordered the book people have got it from amazon uh people have sent me checks if you do want to send me a check uh, it's 22 dollars. that's shipping included i'll sign the book um and and all of that so happy to do that uh send me an email at jrodwood at gmail.com j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com if you're interested in a book um you can get it on Amazon. That's the only other place right now that that you're going to be able to get it. Uh, um, I've that I've decided just to sell it personally uh, f- from my home and from Amazon.com. So so that's where we're at right now with it and selling a lot on Amazon. You can get actually get it quicker through them. And if you're subscribed, uh, if if you're on Amazon Prime, you can get it actually cheaper. So either way is fine with me. I just want to get this book into people's hands. So check it out. It's It's been... Uh, oh, one thing. Please leave some reviews on Amazon if you've purchased the book. I know how many people have purchased and uh, a very small percentage have actually left a review. I think there were like four reviews when I checked last time. So um, it, if you could please do that, that would be awesome because it really does make a difference. So basically... Um, it, the the book is the book has rankings. Amazon kind of ranks all all of the books that they sell, and there's not actually a person there that's 
that stand there saying, okay, this, you ought to buy this book. You ought to, this is a good book. That's a good book. No, it's a, it's an algorithm. And the algorithm uh, looks at things like how many people have bought the book? Uh, how many reviews has the book had? How, what, what is the rating on those reviews? How many five-star reviews are there versus one-star reviews, whatever. And if you are are kind of up in that ranking and, and there are things like lots of purchases and lots of reviews, then Amazon is more likely to suggest that book to other people. It'll show up in the top, uh, you know, the, the top categories, uh, the top books in, in its category. This one is in hunting and sports history. Um, and, and it'll bump up in the rankings there as there are most, more sales and reviews. And it'll also show up as a suggestion when people buy a book uh, on trapping or in the outdoors. Um, they may get a suggestion, hey, you should check out this Walter Arnold book. And that's one of my biggest goals is trying to get this book to other people outside of kind of the, the trapping um, circle. I, I think it's an awesome book for trappers, but it's also something that would be really great to get non-trappers and people that are kind of on the edges in, in the hunting community to uh, to learn more about the history of trapping in sort of back in that 1930s, 40s, 50s era. So leave a review if you haven't already. I'd appreciate that. And uh, buy the book if you haven't. The other thing we have to to uh, plug here is the t-shirts. The Trapping Today Mustelid t-shirts are here. They are, they've arrived. I picked them up this morning in town. What I ended up doing, so, so Philippe, one of our listeners who is an incredibly talented artist, has put together a put together a beautiful drawing of a bunch of mustelids. So, you know, I'm a Martin guy. I love, I love Martin. I love mustelids in general. I think they're awesome. Um, and we as trappers, uh, those of us who have the privilege to be able to harvest these, these particular fur bears, the mustelids, we're very, very fortunate. Um, cause they really are unique and, and they're just so cool. So we kind of put together this t-shirt and he drew, um, the, these, uh, these beautiful pictures of all of different mustelids that, that we trap here in North America. We've got top front and center, the Wolverine. We've got river otter, badger, fisher, martin, weasel, and mink. And they're all kind of drawn with their natural habitat and surroundings. It's just really cool. We got trapping today on the top and the bottom says prized mustelids of the North American trapper. So I've been working, I've been quite a while. I've been mentioning this book or this shirt, book, shirt, everything going on. I've been talking about the shirt for quite a while and it took me forever to get it done because I couldn't find, I, I was really particular about the shirt I wanted and, and how I wanted it done. And I could not find the combination of uh, the model shirt that I wanted that would be, I wanted a high quality shirt that's going to be comfortable for people to wear that you're going to actually enjoy wearing. So I found some shirts that I really liked and I said, okay, these are the ones I'm going with. Um, I also wanted, I needed a particular color because Philippe said there's certain like tan and beige like colors that will work with this all black uh, artist drawing. And if you, if you choose too dark of a color, then it's going to kind of, you're going to lose the, the art detail and it's not going to pop very well. And so, so to find that, to find 
something that was the the right shirt, the right uh, color available in in the right sizes, and also a printing company that was easy to work with was very difficult. So what I ended up doing is just buying the shirts myself, uh, blank shirts with nothing on them, the the specific model and color that I wanted. And I went uh, in town here, half hour away, and I found uh, the local print shop. And I just, I actually had a sample that I had printed off online that I bought. <laughs> they wouldn't give me a free sample, I had to buy it. And I brought it in, I said, okay, here's what we got. And I gave him the image, and I gave him the shirt, give him the image file, and they custom printed all of the shirts that I brought in. And so I have uh, 50 shirts here um, of various sizes, uh, mostly large and XL, but I do have a few XXL and uh, mediums as well, and a couple of kids' sizes. So if you're interested, um, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to go with 25 bucks and I'm going to include shipping in that cost. Um, email me again, jrodwood at gmail.com if you want a shirt. I, I'm not going to get it up. If it rains this week, I'll get it up uh, on on Gumroad and get it on the website. And you'll have a place to click and order and use your credit card and all that. Um, but uh, if, it, if not, I'm going to be working and hauling hay uh, when I'm not working. So um, I, I, just email me and I could probably one of these evenings just put up a, a PayPal invoice and and you can pay and I can ship you off a shirt. So these these things are awesome, and they they really are cool. I can't wait to to put up a a couple of pictures of of the shirts, and the the shirt is a it's a Bella canvas. I can't remember the model. I think it's thirty four thirteen Bella canvas, and it is uh, a blend between uh, it it's a a polyester cotton rayon blend. <clears throat> so it's a it's called a tri blend shirt. It's kind of kind of stretchy it's got the comfort and softness of cotton it's incredibly soft but it's also uh, kind of uh, stretchy and it's a it's a thin shirt and it's not thin because it's a cheap shirt by any means it's thin because that's what I wanted I wanted it it's just such a comfortable shirt it's form-fitting it's thin it's great for wearing this time of year um, and and it's just it's just super comfortable so the shirts, the shirts are here. I'm excited about that. All right. Well, this is a great, great interview. Um, so if you haven't seen the TV show Trapping Inc. TV, uh, this is kind of something that has it caught my radar probably, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And it, it was the show uh, from a Canadian trap line. Uh, from from a trapper named Rich Mellon, he and his wife are operating out of their uh, their their trapline cabin in northern Alberta. And it was just a really cool show, and and I thought, well, that's awesome, you know. And it, and it was it was gaining popularity, and apparently it was super super popular in Canada, but in the U.S. it hadn't quite, you know, a lot of us just just didn't really know much about it and I started watching I'm like wow this is awesome this is a this is a a really good high quality show it's great trapping information and I realized this thing is had over 3 million an audience of over 3 million viewers in Canada and uh, Rich talks more later on in in our interview uh, in future episodes we'll talk about more about the details behind the show and all of that but 
uh, the thing was absolutely incredibly popular and, and it did a lot to spread the word about trapping to, to hunters and other outdoors people who, who were, did not have a direct um, background in trapping. Um, now the show is available on Amazon Prime. So uh, like I don't have satellite or cable TV, but I do have Prime and this is one of the shows that I watch on my Prime account. Um, and, and it's just great to see that uh, that, that the show is, is so widely available. Um, Rich also does the uh, Scuttlebutt, Trapping Inc. Scuttlebutt podcast that he started relatively recently, and he interviews different trappers and just, just talks trapping. So uh, really good guy, uh, a lot of fun. I, I, was, I was a little bit nervous interviewing him because, you know, he's been massively successful in not only in with the Trapping Inc. show, but in the outdoor world. He's He's uh, was on the the professional walleye tour. Um, he uh, had had an outdoor show for a very long time, hunting and fishing show. <clears throat> but having listened to the podcast and seen him on TV, like this, he's such a down to earth guy and such a friendly, uh, enjoyable guy to talk to. I knew I knew we'd have fun, and we actually talked for like three hours. So I'm gonna try to boil that down into uh, into a little bit. Uh, it, a few different segments that we can listen to here on the podcast, but I'll stop talking. Let's get into the first episode with Rich Mellon of Trapping Inc. <laughs> Rich Mellon from Trapping Inc. TV, uh, Alberta Trapper Extraordinaire, uh, Scuttlebutt Podcast. Um, Rich, it's great to have you on. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I know of you from... Uh, the show, uh, Trapping Inc. TV, and from your podcast that you and your wife Sandy put on, um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to the story there. So you want to maybe take us back to the beginning and talk about uh, how you got started in the outdoors? I was born. <laughs> <laughs> the north, the north, it, it, it's a life, and uh, especially I'm I'm 61 now, and back in those days, I mean, I was. 18, I think, before I had first ate beef. You know, everything was, was moose or, or elk. We didn't really care much for deer. Wasn't wasn't a lot of deer around back then, if you can imagine. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's just something, you know, deer is something that came in with uh, with agriculture. And we, uh, you were just born into it. I mean, that, that, that was some of the first things that you remembered. We started as, as trappers. I mean, uh, uh, I can remember my grandpa, and my grandpa died by the time I was four, but I can remember trapping uh, pack rats and uh, and squirrels and that in, in the granaries with him when I was little. I, m- I remember that. That's, that's about the only memory I have my, of my grandpa other than when he, when he was, was dying. And, and that all happened by, by the time I was, I was four. So, you know, it, it, something like that is so ingrained. Uh, I get asked so many times, you know, how did I get into trapping? Like, like it was a choice or something? No, <laughs> it wasn't a choice. It's no, I mean tr- truly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it, it was the life. It was the life, and I mean, it's like so many other people born into situations where, you know, uh, well, it's like asking somebody how, how did they decide to to, uh, to be Irish or, or whatever. Well, I was born. I mean, that that was the way it is, and um, it was just the, our, our life. Um, I can remember, you know, when, by the time we were in elementary school, uh, the city we, that we lived next to now, Grand Prairie is over 70,000 people. But at the time, uh, it was when my brother and I were trapping rats, it would have been, I don't know, six, 7,000 people. And we would leave 
elementary school and uh you know it was if it hadn't snowed too much you know by the time of things were freezing usually we have ice here by the middle of october uh then we we'd take our bikes otherwise we'd walk but it wasn't that far over to there was a bunch of ponds and that on the on the edge of the the town and and we'd strap on our skates and we'd go check muskrat uh, we'd have muskrat sets out there we have i don't know your area um or how it is there, but here the muskrats build push-ups on top of the ice as the ice is forming. And that push-up uh, is, is, is just made out of uh, vegetation off the bottom. And what it is, is he's building a little hut in there that he can go up and get a breath of air in. Because yeah. his food is, is right there. And he can only swim so far under with one breath of air. And then he needs another breath of air. And then he wants to go down and he wants to bring up food. And Amazingly, a muskrat is just about the only animal that can eat underwater. The way it's lips are designed it can it can actually bite off vegetation and chew it and swallow it without drowning which is probably a good thing that i can't do that or i'd, 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 I'd overweight a long time ago <laughs> i've been accused of eating fried chicken in the shower at the end of the day <laughs> but we would go and uh you know we would take turns it, it's amazing this the thing so when you look back at it now we were talented, you know. Here's here's a couple of kids, you know, eight eight years old. Uh, I was probably the, the eldest, eight nine years old, and we would go with a pair of hockey skates on. We would go from uh, uh, one push up to the next, and one one person would pop it open and check for muskrat. If there's muskrat, he hands to the other guy. The other guy would start skinning it, and uh, by the time we, that was reset and and uh, we were moved on to the next one, the the, the previous muskrat was skinned. And we we would take turns, right? Yeah, and we were quite the efficient little team. That it, sounds it like some serious amazing. business. <laughs> <laughs> you you cannot believe how much uh, you know uh, when we'd start to have have vehicles. And that by the time you know you're 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 fourteen, you can have a vehicle, and, and you know you in our country you were supposed to have that's a learner's license, and you were supposed to have an adult with you. Well, nobody ever. Ever, I mean, we got caught many, many times, but the fishing game or the or the officers knew who we were, and you know, like don't 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 be out on the on the main roads kind of thing. And, <laughs> but we would, we would drive all over the place, and we'd have permission everywhere, and and um, you know, you stop on a pair of skates on a Saturday, and you might go, you know, ten miles cross country and everything else wearing a pair of skates, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were never very sharp, but at so any you, point, you had but, quite a bit of water yeah. around that area. Yeah, there's a lot of potholes here. We're just we're just about the northern edge of the of the uh, prairie uh, pothole region. Like, actually, if you get down around Edmonton and uh, you know Edmonton to uh, to Red Deer, there that's the major prairie pothole that raises raises the uh, vast majority of ducks that fly on the flyways, and and that's where the vast majority of the muskrats come from uh, in Alberta. Like, I know people that will go trap muskrats for. For two weeks, and and they'll end up with five, six thousand muskrats. Oh, that's amazing. It, it's not like uh, it's not like the uh, uh, what's it called in Wisconsin, the Dells in Wisconsin, where uh, you know they they might they might get ten thousand in in the same amount of time because they they actually lease from the state, I believe it is. They lease by by the acre or whatever. I met less of people in at the NTA a couple of years ago in Escanaba, Michigan, and they were fascinating to talk to. One fella who was, I think I believe his name was Herman. He was high up in 
North American Fur Auctions. He was in, the, I believe it was the New Jersey swamps. He did muskrats there, and they yeah, were they, they, were they had a lot of rats there. I I know they they've got Nutria there now that that are grazing hell with the rats, but they that is great rat country. What on earth is a Nutria? <laughs> well, we don't have them here in Maine, so I can't. Uh, there. I don't have a lot of experience with them, but they're, my understanding is a very oversized muskrat that were introduced back in the 1940s uh, for the, as part of the fur farming industry. And they have kind of gone wild and exploded in places like Louisiana and the Northwest uh, and uh, in places in, in New Jersey as well. Where did they come from? Uh, you know what? I don't know, but while you're talking, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Isn't it great I, to have I hear about them when I <laughs> technology is awesome. Uh they're native to South America. Okay. Okay. And so they, they were a valuable fur source at one point? Yeah, back you know, thirties and forties when there was a good fur market. I, I think you could sell just about anything at the time and people saw how uh they were a, a larger version of the muskrat and thought it would be a good idea to bring him in. Okay, okay. It's it's funny how uh, things like that happen a lot, and when you have, you know, animal movements or or you know when they start moving into new areas. Like, uh, I have a friend who lives in southern Ontario, so he's probably actually south of you, and yeah. he they, they they're starting to have possums show up, mm-hmm. and believe it or not, there are people biologists within the government that are are looking to protect the biologists, even though it's an invasive species. And they're there because they're saying it's, it's climate change causing it or whatever. And just across the border, the possum is the biggest pest ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's how silly people are, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They are just starting to show up about five, six hours drive south of me, uh, of where I am. So it's uh, and, and gray fox as well. Um, we, we never had gray fox in the state for a long time, and they've started to move north. So... Yeah, definitely uh, some changes. I would love to catch a gray fox. I've, they, they look so pretty. I, uh, I've, I've never, we, on our, on our big trap line, we have few, very few fox. We live in a, a country that's, that's tough for fox, yet if you go north of us, even further north, you know, all through the territories, Alaska, and that, there's lots of red fox. Mm-hmm. Just our, our particular area, I think we have, we have so too much snow, we get too much snow for the fox, but, um, Getting back to how it all started, it was just it was just part of life. You know, we were we we grew up, uh, we hunted, we fished, we uh, uh, we trapped. If you uh, looked up Jack Pine Savage in the dictionary, there's a picture of my brother and I together. You know, <laughs> 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 and we uh, we enjoyed it. We we enjoyed the ride. We got in on that um, on the. the the big boom in the 80s, when the early 80s, when uh, lynx were running over a thousand dollars a hide. I had one that uh, at that time we we were sending our fur to the Thunder Bay fur market, which I think ended up being uh, bought out by what's now fur harvesters. It was one of the many buys that ended up, you know, for, forming fur harvesters. But I, I, I got like thirteen hundred dollars for this this one uh, this one lynx. And that was back before there were quota, and that was back before, like, you know, wherever you trapped, you could, you caught whatever you caught, right? Okay. Uh, life has changed now where we, you know, 
only if you have registered for area do you uh, have um, any of the quota animals. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're the only ones that there's the quota is a maximum that you can take. So we, we don't have any minimums. Like some places, like Ontario has. Yeah, they have beaver. If you have a trap line. Yeah, they have a minimum. You have to get 75% of your quota every year in order to keep your, your trap line. Um, it's it's little. Every province has its own laws, just like every state has its own laws. But most of Canada is broke up into registered fur uh, uh, fur trap lines, and what that means is that they all of the public land here we call it crown land. You you would call yep. it public land. Um, all of the public land is divided up into trap lines, and in Alberta that happened in 1925. Okay. They uh, yeah they divided everything up. The average size of a registered um, uh, for a trap line in Alberta is two townships. And uh, are you familiar with townships? Well, a township here is six miles by six miles. Yes, exactly. So that's the average size is two. There are some, as you go further north, uh, they thought it was less valuable place for, for trapping that, but as you go further north, some of them are 30 townships the size. Wow. And uh, that's that's the most wealthy fur area in the world, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, can, can one person... Uh, uh, own more than one registered trap line? Yes. Okay. Yes, you can. Uh, there is, a, it's kind of a straw man thing that's going on where they say that people are, are buying trap lines. Who buy and sell the trap line? You buy and sell the assets and, and the, uh, you have the right, the exclusive right to that trap line, that area to trap. Like I have, my, tra uh, my trap line is four townships. Yep. So it's 12 miles by 12 miles or 144 square miles of, of, of traffic. And I have the only right to trap there. And what I bought, when I bought it, is uh, there were three cabins on it. There was an old snowmobile and, the, and that kind of stuff. So I, I, I ended up paying for that. Yeah. Uh, and I have to do a full report every year that, that shows that I'm trapping because people – have, especially when you get over towards the mountains, uh, you know, in Alberta, we have uh, the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains and the Rockies divide us from BC. And uh, those eastern uh, uh, slope of the mountains is very, very popular for, for hunting and, you know, like bighorn sheep and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of people that have bought trap lines over there and basically they build a nice Hunt, big cabin. Yeah, a hunting cabin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's not legal. That's not legal. That was not the whole idea behind trapping uh, the trap lines or, or anything else. But, you know, you have four doctors that go together and they oh, bought a, a trap line for six, $600,000. Wow. You know, like that can never, ever be paid for. Right. You know, by, by the, uh, by the fur, you know, or, but when you take a, a zero off of there and, and go, go to $60,000, which is what I paid for my trap line, uh, my current trap line. And, and I bought that, uh, well, this would be my sixth year on it now. I've paid for it already with fur, you know? Wow. And, and yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, there has to be some realism, but I'm not advocating the government get more involved in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's interesting that you, you're talking about those trap lines and the guys that, that I talk with in Alaska um, have a similar system where you, you can buy a trap line from someone uh, essentially by buying the gear and their agreement not to not to trap there in, in the cabins but but it's not controlled by the government um, you you have any thoughts like is is one system better than the other well my claim is backed by law by a by a basically a deed 
Yeah. And so I think that's better because as the world gets more crowded, those old conventions, those old handshake conventions aren't going to hold up. It's today's people don't have the same respect, you know, for, uh, you know, for historic principles that we, we've always had, you know, and I, I, I see it all the time. Like, I mean, we, of course, with the TV show, you know, we, we air on YouTube and we air on Amazon Prime and all that kind of stuff. We have an incredible reach. And so people from all over the world contact us, and, uh, but mostly fellows from the U.S. And that is the number one concern is that people, you know, intruding on their area or on their trap line. You know, like people talk about how you might have six different people sat underneath a, a bridge for me, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So I understand the difficulty of, the whole idea that you know that I have 144 square miles that I have exclusively, I can I I can uh, sign as many juniors as I want, uh, as long as I'm producing fur, and I do produce a lot of fur. As long as I'm producing fur, I'm I'm doing what I'm, I'm honoring what how the system was set up. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like you know the Second Amendment uh, with you folks and that. I mean, it was it had a principle about why it was set up, and that was that. You know, no invading force or government could, could you know, overtake the, the people, right? The people right. had the right to defend themselves. And people lose that idea because they, you know, they, they lose the idea and say, well, you don't need an automatic weapon to, to hunt deer. Well, it wasn't about hunting deer. Yeah. It was, it was uh, for the people to stand up for their rights. And that was the, the, the same principle that was behind setting up registered trap lines was to make sure that trap lines were being used. Because before that, I mean, the areas around, you know, uh, metropolitan areas where, where, where most of the traffic took place. And of course, there was lots of theft. There was lots of, of wars and, and, and fighting and that. You know, somebody needed money, you know, in, in the hungry 30s, uh, you know, a muskrat was, was, was worth a buck, you know, and, and you couldn't work in a factory for, for a buck a day, but you could go out and catch, you know, maybe 20, 30 muskrats in a day. Mm-hmm. So it was, that was really big money and it became a, you know, how do we control this? Well, then they had to, they, by splitting it up, they forced people to, to, to actually, you know, either live out on their trap line or move further. And that, that was why in Alberta we're allowed to buy, or we're allowed to uh, build cabins on our trap line. And it's because we're allowed to live. We're allowed to live there the, the, the year round. Okay. And the whole idea was, was to utilize the, the fur, you know, that it was, you know, that there was, it wasn't, uh, you know, being over harvested in one area and not being touched in another just by, by simple, you know, logistics of, of what is easy access, right? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Um, I, the one drawback that I would see personally is I'm, I, I always like to explore different areas and I'm, I'm thinking, well, what if I wanted, there's nobody trapping in this particular drainage and I wanted to go check that out and try trapping. And I suppose you could, you could talk to the guy who has the registered line and maybe sign on as a, you call it a junior? Yes. Yeah. And you know what? That is happening more and more because now there's been, uh, we've had a change in government and, and there's been a lot more focus on whether or not people are actually using the trap line and what the use is. Like my son is a junior on a trap line in central Alberta, um, um, near the sound of Rocky Mountain House uh, in the mountains. And the old fellow that owns the trap line is 82 years old. He has a wonderful cabin, built a beautiful log cabin on that. And he likes to go out and cut the grass in the yard in the summertime and watch the moose in the down in the muskeg below the cabin. That, that that's that's what he lives for. He's he's starting to suffer from dementia. That his son is a 
is an engineer in the oil patch and has no interest in trapping but loves to be out of the cabin with his dad. So the only way they can keep it is if somebody is trapping it, and so that's my son. Okay. My son is out there trapping, and, and uh, he does his fur reports every year, and, and everybody's happy because it's being utilized, Yeah. you know, and which which was the whole design afterwards, you know. Like, there, there are people that, as more and more juniors got signed, then, then there were people who got – everybody's got their own axe to grind, right? Yeah. And – so a lot of people get into this while it's, you know, people are, are using it for hunting camps and all that because these people want the hunting camp or they want the, the, uh, the trap line. So then when, you know, they started cracking down and they're, they're on the fur reports and there had to be, uh, you know, uh, so much fur taken every year and, and whether it was by you or a junior didn't matter, well then, which is the way it always was. There was never a difference between whether it was the junior or the senior that was catching the fur. Now, all of a sudden, people are complying by having juniors on there. Then, you know, the people are, are, are mad because that wasn't <laughs> wasn't the end they wanted, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the folks are abiding by the law. The fur is being trapped. You know, the land's being managed. and uh, But that's not what they wanted. That You know, that wasn't their end game. But, you know, in today's world, with with coyotes and wolves and, and uh, you know, the issues we've got there, we need trappers more than ever. Like I notice a lot of my, my friends in that throughout the States are, are not really fur trappers as, as they're, they're animal damage control trappers. Yes. And, you know, cause there's, there is so much conflict between civilization and the wild. And, you know, the trappers are that last buffer. You know, we're, we're the last people between. You know, I've said this many, many times, but, you know, in Alberta, on average, we ship between forty and 45,000 coyotes to the auction every single year. Okay? You can imagine what it would cost the day the trappers don't do that for free anymore. Yeah, and if the coyote price crashes, then uh, that we might see a little bit of that. You might. You certainly might. Uh, I don't know if it's going to crash or not. I, I don't think so. I, I don't know what the heck Canada Goose is doing with this buyback thing. I think that's on the on the surface used to be such a laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're probably. I, I'm trying to figure out whether they're going to go into people's closets and start clipping the the their trim off their parkas or what. Well, I mean, just even go do a search out into Gigi or or whatever. You know, whatever uh, reseller you've got around. That's the Craigslist in Canada. Okay, Craigslist. Yeah. You've taken, and how many, how many, uh, uh, are the Canada Goose jackets out there for sale? (laughs) Wow. Seriously. None here. No, I know. When they come up here, and, and, you know, that full expedition is a very expensive uh, jacket, you know, and if you find one that comes up for sale at 800 bucks or something, you, you want to be all over it as, as long as it's not junk. And it just doesn't happen. You know, it just does not happen. So I don't know where this is coming from. I think, you know what I think? I think Canada Goose bought themselves two years. Yeah. They bought themselves two years from, from the antis, and they're hoping something else changes in between, or they've got another program or something that's going to going to take take the, the load off, but if coyotes are still popular in two years' time, they're going to be buying them. That's a, that's a great point. That, that wouldn't surprise me a bit if, if they just they were under pressure and they needed to buy some time. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's my thoughts. But, I hope so. Uh, 
Canada Goose, like uh, we're all you know, like our top end, our heavies like, out of you know Alberta and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan has the best case in the world, uh, and uh, that they just they're a small coyote. They're they're fine furred. Even the males are are, are pretty fine furred, but those females are just like silk. They have the white bellies and they have the best in the world. We we're, we we can run them, you know, close close compromise, but we're not as good as, as theirs. But those really high end things don't go to Canada Goose. Yeah, they they go to Italy, and and a lot of people don't realize that. You know, like um, Mark Downey, who owns uh, fur harvesters in, in Canada. I've, I've dealt a lot with Mark, and and I did a podcast with him after, you know, they had they they tried to have a. Um, an online auction. He says, he says the high end guys couldn't get here. And he says, they do not buy things they don't see. And that only makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, none, none, none of us would buy something high end. I mean, if, if, if you're buying something cheap, sure, you do it online or whatever, but not, not when it's high end, not when, when you're looking for something particular. So I, I, I understand, you know, Canada goose is a big volume buyer and they, um, they're kind of like uh, like McDonald's, like they hi- buy the whole cow, you know. So McDonald's not only gets the flank, but it gets the ribeye. Yeah. But it all gets grounded to burger, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we so, wandered a long ways away from where we started. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to know. I, going back to your trap line, I want to know if 144 square miles is enough to keep you busy. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it every four days, and I have uh, a little over 300, uh, 300 kilometers of, of line. So, I don't know, 180, 100, 180 miles, something like that. That's, yeah, that's and, a good way. Huh? Yeah, well, I mean, you got to think about, you know, if, especially like Martin and Fisher are, are big uh, animals for us, as well as lynx and otter and that. And you can have a trap every, every quarter mile. So you think about that, you know, how, how often when you square out 144 square miles, how many traps can be set, you know? Like mm-hmm. I, I probably have 400 Martin boxes ha- hanging out there all the time because we're in a remote area and I don't have to worry about people, you know, uh, vandalism or people stealing them. Why you steal a plywood box, I don't know, but people have done it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't, uh, you know, I've got nowhere near one every quarter mile, you know what I mean? Because some areas just don't, don't have the uh, the area that or the, the habitat that carries them. Like we do have some uh, in the center of the trap line. There's a, a big area of tamarack muskeg, and it's probably uh, I don't know. Might might even be a quarter, maybe as much as a third of the center of that 144 square miles that, that is tamarack muskeg, and really doesn't hold much. It hold, uh, lakes travel in the winter time because there are rabbits in there, but as far as Fisher and uh, and Martin and that they're just they're just travelers that will go through there, and that's you know that that young of the year dispersing and, and they'll move through. And so I don't target them because it's really a low um, a low uh, percentile area, and you end up catching more more squirrels and stuff like that. And I don't I don't need more squirrels in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's well, awesome. Did you have did you have to do a lot of trail cutting and moving traps in and stuff when you bought the line? Oh yes, the fellow that I bought it from ended up uh, getting sick and he uh, ended up getting dementia. 
And so he hadn't trapped it for probably eight years. Uh, when I went back through and I looked at uh, the fur records and that, uh, all of a sudden, like eight years before, he no longer had a single quota animal. And a quota animal, you know, like the the, um, the senior has to take a quota animal in and it gets registered and tagged. So our quota animals are fisher, otter, wolverine, and lynx. And, you know, like my maximum number of fisher for a year is 18. My maximum number of lynx is 22. Uh, otter is a dozen and, and wolverine is one. And but so what happened was they, they were still doing a fur report, which anybody could, could do for him. When, when you do the quota, you're signing it's an affidavit, right? But the fur reports are a different deal altogether. So all of a sudden, they, they started catching a whole bunch more beaver and muskrats, beaver and muskrats, beaver and muskrats. And, and, uh, and this guy told me that his son was then fudging the records because they, they no longer were catching any quota animals. But when we took it over, it also showed that. One of the things that people don't understand is that the more you trap an area, the more uh, useful it becomes, the more productive it becomes. When we took it over, all of our animals were old, uh, old apex predators. So, for instance, I was allowed 18 fisher a year, and I was allowed whatever martin I wanted to catch, right? Well, martin is smaller than a fisher, so everything eats a martin. Yeah. The first year, by the time I had to quit, and like I still had a month of season left, and I, I had to I had to pull all of my Martin and Fisher traps because I uh, I was at twenty fish Fisher, mm-hmm. I was two over my quota, you know. Like I mean, you go out one time, you you know, you make a check and you have five, and the next time you go, you have eight. You know what I mean? Like right. and then it's like boom. But at the same time, I had seven Martin. Okay, <laughs> almost yeah. obvious what was going on there. Up. Well, yeah, you're, you're a biologist. You, you know exactly what's going on. We, the, the vast majority of that 20, one was a female because the females are smaller. And all, everything else was like big old males, right? And uh, I, at the same time that I caught 20 Fisher, I caught seven Martin. You know, it just, it, there, there was, and they were all in one little tiny corner of the, uh, of the trap line down in the southeast. Over the years now, uh, I probably average in that dozen to 18 fisher every year, but now I'm running over 40 martin a year. Yeah. And the martin has spread out right across the the trap line. You know, and it's the same thing with lynx. Like my, my, my first year, I got a dozen lynx, and, and they were all big, big lynx. And they were all mostly males, once again. There was no kittens. There was, they didn't even see tracks of kittens. And, you know, after... Uh, Four years in that now, I've, my my lynx population is higher than ever because uh, you know the, the females are having lots and lots of young. I saw a female last year with nine kittens, you know, um, and I, I was sitting at I think eight, 17 or eighteen uh, lynx at the time, and I could have shot them. I could have shot and filled up my uh, up to twenty two if I wanted to, but kittens aren't worth what the what the what the uh, adults are worth, and and what the heck? I mean, leave them for the for another year, right? Yeah. So, you know, that was the other thing. I, w- I was not catching any end of the year, whether it was, whether it was my uh, my Martin, all my, you know, that seven Martin were all big, big, big Martin. And, and once again, mostly males. I'm not sure I understand that, the male to female ratio, because now I'm catching probably 30 to 40% female in, uh, in all of them. 
and and yet the populations are, are higher and better, right? The only the only place where that's still an anomaly is my my weasel, my short-tailed weasel, and they have just gone on a tear the last couple of years. I'm averaging, you know, sixty, seventy weasel a, a season, hmm. and just about every one of them is a male. Huh. I, wow. I, I I don't know the explanation for that. I've asked. I've asked biologists that, and they, they, they don't have any idea either. Well, just overall, that's a fascinating concept, uh, and I think it, it gets overlooked a lot, and it, it, maybe it's because it's counterintuitive. Like, well, you trap more animals, there's, you're going to have fewer animals you know, on, on the surface, but the, that whole idea that the trap line becomes more productive, as, or the, the habitat, the area becomes more productive as it's trapped and animals are harvested, when you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it is. And it, like you say, it is counterintuitive. Because everybody looks at you to begin with. And, I mean, I deal with a lot of people who are non-believers and a lot of people who are, you know, very anti-trapping. And, and I, you know, I've got pretty good at judging whether it's worth, worth my, my breath or not. <laughs> and if I can get, get them to walk away with just a neutral, you know, like they're okay. It's maybe not bad. I'm not sure it's good, but it's maybe not bad. But I get that neutral, and I, I think I've had a victory. So I'm not sure, you know, exactly how it works. Other than you know, every year, you know, depending on the species and that, only one to ten percent of the young of the year have to make it to the next year for that that species to carry on. Yeah. So you know, when we're talking about walleye, you know, we're 1%, right? 1% of the eggs. We're, we're yeah, it, 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 I, in fisheries, I work with this all the time, and, and you have a hard time, people have a hard time understanding, you know, uh, it, it, I equate it to when someone kills, uh, a, say, kills a doe, and some people say, well, you just killed two because you killed a, a, you know, that doe would have had a fawn or two fawns the following year, so you could have killed three deer by just killing that doe. Well, it doesn't really work that way. You know, Mother Nature has set things up to where um, the, the habitat is the constraining factor. And, and when you talk about fish, you know, fish can have between three, four hundred to thousands of eggs, and only two of those need to survive to adults to replace uh, and sustain the population. Yeah, absolutely true, and, and that was that was the, the you know the, the same situation here. We um, uh, it was would have been in the early '80s, and we were running like uh, 150,000 or, or 180,000 moose tags every year, and that was successful harvest. And so the the, the we were over harvesting uh, the moose, and it was wide open. Like I mean, there was. Uh, the uh, season would, would run from the 1st of September to the end of November, and there was a, a month-long cow and calf season in the middle. Like, I mean, we couldn't have, have targeted, <laughs> you know, that, done more for, for, for herding it. And we, you know, we were in a boom population at the time. So they went to draw. They went to draw, and it was pretty easy. Uh, you know, one of the things they did was they split it to, there was an early season, which was, you know, calling season, which was always fun, and then there was a late season, which was probably more successful. But anyway... They uh, they ended up driving the populations up, and they were so proud. This would have been in the early 90s. They were so proud because now we had 30% more moose than we'd ever have had on the landscape. And they said, you know, this was a success from their the, the biologists and their limited entry draws and, and, you know, managing for the future. And, and that year we had, that spring, we had the terrible moose tick population. I, I think Maine, you, you know what that is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tick. Yes. 
Yeah, well, we had, guess what? The moose ticks killed 30% of the population, so we were right back to the carrying capacity we had before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and those could have been hunter-killed and gone into freezers, if you think about it. Well, that's just it, and that's why I, where I was going with this 1% to 10% thing, is that all we are dealing in is a surplus, you know? That's what we're looking for, is, is to manage that surplus. Uh, I, I know that nothing ever gets wasted in, in the wild, but... You know, if we can put that fur to use, you know, that, 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 that's a, a big advantage. And it, it's not, you know, the, the, the carcass might go back out onto your, onto your wolf baits or whatever, you, you know, that kind of stuff. So nature does get it. You're just taking the fur out of the equation and putting it to use. So there's, uh, you know, the conservation side of it is something that people don't see. They all think that, you know, trappers are, are the bloodthirsty, uh, uh, criminals basically and and they're just looking out for uh, out for money and, and that's not the truth not the truth at all yeah you know i mean we we are conservationists and um especially here in canada we're we're signatory to ahetus i don't know if you're aware of that what ahetus is um you'll you'll have to uh you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to explain it so i can uh, is that a humane standard yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was in the uh, in the 80s they started trying to ban our fur out of Europe, out of uh, Europe and the European Union, and so finally it got serious, and we said, okay, tell us what's humane. We're not going to stop trapping, but tell us what's humane. So they kind of laughed at us, and they set these standards. So while we met them, and uh, things like uh, a Fisher or Martin has to be uh, dead or beyond recovery in uh, in two minutes, 120 seconds. You know, um, a beaver has to be dead or be on recovery in in uh, in five minutes, three hundred seconds. Uh, that and that's the things like the you guys call them conibear, which is a brand, but uh, the body grip traps. And we uh, we have our, our signatory to that here. So it is the agreement of international humane trapping standards. And because we you know, signatory to it, uh, you know, allows our fur to go go to the Europe and all that, and and by extension, you guys get to get to piggyback in, in on that too, because you send, you know, so many of you send your fur to uh, to the auctions in Canada, or now it's just one auction, but but so your your fur gets included in now what we're doing, and that changed how we trap things. Yeah, uh, it changed a lot of how we trap things. Like no longer can Martin be uh, caught in a foothold, you know. Uh, and, you know, say or think what you want about me, but I don't want my animal hanging by its foot off a tree waiting to freeze to death or waiting for me to come along. I, I like that 120-second thing, you know, the two minutes. Um, when my time comes, I'll take the 120 seconds anytime. <laughs> you know, like it, it's, uh, I, I got no problem with, with the traps that I have, and I got no problem with, with packing extra traps because they're, they're frozen into it or whatever. And, and uh, I, I like to be dead there. I like to, I, I don't like, you know, the, the, the thought of, of them waiting for, for me or death or whatever. So uh, that's, that's just me. I mean, I mean, I may be a, a little soft tired. I mean, I, well, it certainly I varies, but yeah, it depends on the person. You know, some, some people have different uh, thoughts and ideas on what's humane than others do for sure. Well, it's kind of way you raised when we were young and that, like, I mean, there was no such thing as, as humane. And I mean, we, we weren't, we didn't, have the same trapping standards and that it was all the way the way it was right and but that's the way we were raised and it not to defend anybody but 
I remember the first time that I under, uh, that, that I read about or heard anything about the Ku Klux Klan. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm a, a voracious reader and investigator, and I, and I read into it, and I, and I began to understand that this was, they were born into it, it was their life, it wasn't something they came to later, it was, that was, that was how they're raised. And so I understood exactly how that could have that kind of grip on you, how you could have those beliefs, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, defending them or anything else. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It, 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 it's a it's a horrendous uh, idea, and no different than than any any of the you know the other terrible you know communists or Nazis or whatever that, that happened throughout history. But I understood how it happened, and you now I look back at it now and in my life and between hunting and trapping and that. I mean, I've, I've killed more animals than, than the Spanish flu, and. I, it, it has become more and more important as I've got older that everything was very, is very, very quick, you know? Um, you know, when you were younger, if you had a bad shot on an animal and you didn't get to finish it up for a few hours, it, it didn't bother you. It didn't keep you up at night, but it does now, you know? It does now for for, for whatever reason. I just, you know, I guess it's one of the stages you go through, right? Yeah, so, the, you get soft as you get old, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I, I and I blame grandkids for that. <laughs> Oh, that was fun chatting with Rich, getting to know him a little bit. Uh, stay tuned for more. Um, we got lots more that we talked about that we'll get into in future episodes. Now it is time for the Cots Brothers Deal of the Week. Go to cotsbros.com and use the code COLONY, C-O-L-O-N-Y, for 10% off any folding colony trap until August 1st. So these are colony traps, uh, multiple sizes for muskrat trapping. And they're folding traps. Their wire looks like uh, one inch by two inch wire. And uh, th- these things are pretty awesome. So if you haven't used colony traps before for rat trapping, if you get into some good rat country and get in the runs, you can really stack up a bunch of muskrats. You can catch multiple uh, animals in each trap every night. So uh, the, these traps will, you know, you can catch two or three rats at a time in these colony traps or, or more. So uh, the, the they have single colony traps, and they have a dozen at a time. They get special deals for a dozen, and they come in three sizes, 5x5, five 6x6, five, six six, or 7x7. Seven seven. Uh, you can buy, buy them each. You can actually buy six, or you can buy a dozen. So check them out. Any of those is going to be 10% off with the promo code COLONY, and you only have a few days to take advantage of this deal because it expires on August 1st. So check them out, cotsbros.com, promo code COLONY. And until next time, guys, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you in the next episode.